Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. In today's episode, we're back with part two of my recent conversation with Dr. Albert Orbanati and Elisa Avalar, both members of the Champlain College Human Resource Management Online Program. In part one, we got to meet Albert and Elisa, learn about their unique paths that led them both into teaching the next wave of HR professionals, and discuss some of the unique challenges currently facing the human resources community. In part two, we're jumping into a conversation about the roadblocks and challenges facing organizations and their HR leaders as teams are figuring out a workforce distribution model that can lead to optimal performance and future growth. We also talk about some of the factors that could be driving many organizations to bringing their teams back into the office, and Albert and Elisa share what they're most excited about in the future of human resources. Let's get you back into our conversation with Albert and Elisa. What are some roadblocks that that are challenging teams as we're now working with so many different workplace formats as teams are looking at different ways to work? What are some of those challenges that HR leaders and change makers need to be thinking about and how can they overcome those challenges? Well, I think there is, uh, again, this movement of trying to get things back to the way that they were. So there's there's two competing forces here, right? So there's there are leaders and employees who uh, want the things to get back to pre-pandemic reality. But then there's the rest of us who realize that things will probably never be the same after that. And so I, I think what that's going to lead to is A, organizations figuring out what works for them. We've talked about that. I think it's going to lead to a one-size-does-not-fit-all approach. And that one-size-does-not-fit-all approach will lead to unfairness in the workplace. So we're talking about these conflicts that are happening and that, I think this is where HR will come in very, very crucially. So there will be a sense of unfairness where, you know, employee A can work remotely, employee B maybe doesn't want to work remotely, maybe appreciates, you know, the in-person experience and wants that. And so how do you, how do you manage that balance? So I'll let uh, Lisa, you know, answer that what question, because I'm not sure uh, how that's going to play out yet. But we know that communication issues will exist. So communication issues, that's the classic conflict that happens in every organization, a sense of unfairness, rating the importance of ad hoc conversations. Like I'm thinking of casual conversations. One of the things that people point to all the time, like, well, in-person experiences are great because, you know, I can have water cooler talk with my colleague and those ad hoc conversations will lead to like creativity and it will lead to all these great things for the organization. Look, I've been working for, you know, over 25 years now and there hasn't been, I don't, not many you know, ad hoc conversations that I've had that have led to these like grand ideas. And so I think we over overvalue the importance of casual conversation in everyday work. So I don't think that that necessarily would be a, a problem between remote employees and in-person employees. But again, we're in this grand experiment right now, you know, so I think organizations are figuring that out. I wish I had a better solution for everybody, but it sounds like to me that one size will not fit all, and that HR needs to be in the middle trying to figure out how to reduce the amount of conflict that'll happen as a result. 
Yeah, figuring out the best way to communicate, mm-hmm. that's going to be a major roadblock that teams are now dealing with as they're trying to figure out, okay, what is hybrid work? Is hybrid everybody back together? Can hybrid be bringing teams back on a flexible level as return to the office when needed? You need to be in the office one day a week. Some teams have taken that approach, but that doesn't mean everyone's in the office together. So, Elisa, what have you seen that could be challenging for HR professionals in this very flexible workplace format? HR leaders really, as they're sitting at the table with the rest of their executive staff, really need to press upon them that when they say, oh, we want to get back to normal, what's normal? Yeah. Because it's kind of like if you crumple up a piece of paper and you straighten it back out, it's never going to be straight again. So we're never going to go back to exactly how it was on March 12th, 2020. That's not going to happen. There's been too many events in the last two years to say, we're going to go back to exactly how that was. We're in a whole different universe now. So we have to accept that this is the new normal and it's okay to not know. I think people are trying to have the right answer and it can be uncomfortable as a leader to say like, I don't know, I'll find out or feel like they have to have the right answer and the right solution right now. And it has to work. We don't know. This is trial and error. Every year, there's a new model of a car. We don't drive the 1930s Ford for a reason. So we have evolved. People evolve. Organizations evolve. I think people are forgetting that everything around us evolves. So why are we so afraid to evolve? And that goes into, which is one of our class, change management. It's like really being able to do that. One of the other classes that we have is, you know, organizational behavior. And it's an uncomfortable class. People don't like that class because it causes them to really focus on who they are to be self-aware and then to be able to accept people for who they are. And that's really now coming into play, right? This whole pandemic has caused us to be super self-aware of what we're good at, what we're not good at, what we should do and shouldn't do, who should we listen to, who has authority. It's like a bingo ball right now. And you don't know what you're getting and you have to be okay with it's okay. We don't know. But at the end of the day, listen to your people. Albert said in the very beginning, listen to your people. Nothing has changed. Listen to your people. If they tell you they don't want to go to the office or they will quit, don't think that they're fibbing you because that that could happen. So you want to sit down. You want to nip that. Why do you say that? What's going on? Why? And sometimes you find out it's a personal situation. You know, um, they need to be home because now with the pandemic, they have family living with them and now they're a part-time caretaker. Or uh, I don't know if we'll have secondary education teachers next year because of how education has been through turmoil as well. And so that people may be homeschooling now. So this work-life blend needs to happen. But what I'm telling leaders is don't think you have to have the right answer. It's okay. Get a group together. You know what I love to do as an HR leader when I'm testing new things? You have your evangelists, right? You have all the people that love the organization and your organization could do no wrong. You need them for feedback. Where are all your naysayers? Why are people afraid to go to the people that are constantly disgruntled or unhappy? Nobody wants to talk, but those are the people you actually do want to talk to because they're, they're not going to, there's no filter with them. They're going to tell you exactly what's wrong and they're going to help you understand various points of view so that you can have a better understanding of what will work. So I love to get a beta group when I'm testing something new and somebody goes, that person never has anything nice to say. And I'm like, that's why I need to hear that. 
I have to hear that. And as leaders, we have to hear that. And I always tell people, I can't fix what I don't know is broken. And if I don't hear the negative and constructive feedback, I can't make improvements that will actually create um, an engaging, inclusive workplace. So I guess the biggest takeaway from my whole rant is it's okay to not know and it's okay to try things and say like, that didn't work. Let's go back to the drawing board. Just like everything else in our life, it's trial and error and it's okay. Well said, I like it. So for those teams that are trying something new and seeing if it works, are there any simple communication methods that can be used to bring things together and keep the train on the tracks for lack of a better term while you're trying out these new methods? Yeah, when I, I recently saw a skills gap assessment, it's really a taxonomy. It was this chart uh, that I saw online and I thought, man, you know, every organization needs to be doing this right now. And what, what a skill gap assessment is, is prioritizing the, let's call it 25 to 30 skills that all of your employees need and maybe five to 10 specialized skills for certain positions. And so leaders, you prioritize all the skills that you know your employees need, you come up with five to 10 more. And then under each of those categories, those skill categories, you you identify the actual uh, actions or tasks that people need to do and have an understanding of. And so once you've got this taxonomy in front of you, then you can start to make structural adjustments to HR processes, to strategic initiatives, to uh, closing skill gaps in your organization. And, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. These taxonomies exist. And it's just the fact of doing the job of this kind of work. And what does that lead to? So if you've got the taxonomy and you know what the skills are that your organization needs and you've prioritized them, and maybe you've even matched people to them. So you can then engage in skill-based hiring. So if there are gaps, you can hire people to fill those skill gaps. You can, it can lead to strategies in reskilling and upskilling. So maybe you've got excellent people, but they just need to be, you know, upskilled into, you know, a different, you know, a different area or uh, reskilled to, you know, learn something new. And then the third thing I think the taxonomy does really well is performance management. So utilizing evaluations to incentivize, you know, building skills and coaching and mentorship. So it really is just about the right tool, I think, you know, to try to figure out who can work remotely and who's a hybrid employee or whatever the case is. So, um, and it requires some work, but I think it's totally doable. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. There are so many great tools in the market right now that can help cover that gap mm -hmm. in communication challenges, in management challenges that we may have seen previously when trying to pull off something such as moving to a remote workforce and having a distributed workforce. We've got the tools that can help that, that can really fill those gaps, cover those challenges that may have previously existed. Right. And and Josh, it's really easy to say no. So it's it's really super easy to say no. This is just not a lesson for HR managers out there. This is a lesson for everybody. Super easy to say no to employees, really hard to say yes. But if you've got the right tool, it's much easier to say yes. Mm -hmm. So blindly saying yes to, you know, if somebody asks you like, hey, my situation changed. And by the way, I am a remote employee, a recent remote employee. I made the switch uh, from working in person to working online just last year. And so these are conversations that I myself have had. And, you know, I had personal situations come up, uh, family situations. You know, my, my wife was looking to restart her career. 
And so we had all these issues and I went to the leadership of the college and I asked, you know, is this a reality for me? Because I teach online, I manage online programs. You know, I'm not unique anywhere. There are other people who have similar jobs that I do. Um, You know, can we make this a reality? And to my surprise, they said, yes, let's give it a shot. Um, Because they had trust in me. You know, they knew about my skills. Um, But for those organizations that may have a lot of people and maybe you don't have a good idea of who your people are, build a text, build an assessment. You can do it. It's very easy. It'll take a day of work. And then you can start having those smart conversations with with your employees and make better decisions. Right. And determine, can we actually do it? Exactly. So let's look at those teams, those offices, those organizations that are looking to return to an office. They're out there. For every company that we see that is declared, hey, we're going fully remote, you hear about the organization, you hear about the company that has said, no, we're doing a full return to the office or some form of that. And our team members need to meet us where we are in a sense. Lisa, why don't you start us off there? What's driving the decision to return back for a lot of organizations? Honestly, that's a really good question. And I, again, just like we have to make a decision what's best for your employees, you're making a decision that's best for your organization and your business, your product or your service. And so you have to determine who is your consumer? What are you in the marketplace? All of those things. And that is a decision driver as to why you might be requiring employees to come back to the office. You know, you can't run a school without people being on campus. You can't run a hospital without people being in the hospital. But they're also making adjustments that if you're in accounting, you probably don't need to be at the hospital. But if you're a nurse, you you know have to be at an office. But we're now doing virtual doctor's appointments and have been for years and things of that nature to help clear up. I think some of the drives is what is their business need? But then I do believe that there is some fear of going remote, which comes down to trust, understanding the communication and and how do you do it? Working remote, you have to have intentional communication. Yes. You will forget you, you you know, I leave my bedroom, come out to my office, sit down. You could work for two hours and be like, oh my gosh, I haven't said hi to anybody, which would never happen in an office. Right? So I tell people, you know what? That really happens to people. Set a reminder to yourself. Don't forget to say hi to your team. It's okay to have a reminder that says that. But the driver going back to the office, I think, are some of those you have a you have a little bit of the fear of the unknown and it's change is difficult. Right. You want to keep things. You know, you need to change, but the status quo is so comfortable. Then you also have what's driving your business. If your business needs to be in person because that's how your business grows and makes money then that's what it is. And I know some employees, you know, I've met with people that have said, oh yeah, we're going back to the office and me, you know, being a remote veteran, I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I could survive in the office, but they're like, oh, I'm so excited to go back to the office because my job does this and this, and then you can see it. So where it fits, it's not just the companies making that decision, the employees are bought into that decision. Again, going in for that buy-in. So I think there's two components. There's a little bit of fear factor, but I do think that there are some businesses where proximity and the physical presence is a need. And that's okay. Every industry has its need. And that's why there's millions of employers. So people can make their choice. But that's what also scares employers right now, right? Because people are making their choice. The the tables have turned. It's now not an employer market. It's an employee market. And so employers need to step up their game and level up and put things in place that are actually 
truly important and valued by the employees, just not putting things in place because that's what you're supposed to do. And that would be an old school HR tactic too, right? To put things in place because that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm like, why do we do that? Oh, we've always done that. But why? You know, why do you have a survey every month? What are you doing with the results? Oh, nothing. We're just doing, I'm like, you can't have a survey without taking action. The results are the same every month, but we've done nothing with them. So sometimes you just need to stop and pause as well as like, why are we doing this? But I do believe that there are some businesses that proximity and physical presence are a need for that business to thrive. And you need to look at it objectively, not saying, oh, I need my business and my employees to be in a building. What does my actual business or my product or my service need? Where will my business thrive? Will my business thrive with physical and proximity or can it thrive in a remote? Can it thrive in a hybrid? Can it, can we switch it around and see what works best? That's okay too. Again, trial and error is not a bad thing. Yeah, Josh, I'll, I'll tack onto that. There are two things that are coming to mind for me. One is think about the people who are making these decisions, right? So if we look at um, organizations, the traditional pyramid structure of an organization. So at the top of the narrow part of the pyramid, you have leaders, right? And leaders are making these decisions on behalf of the organization. And that's okay. Leadership is a lonely place. And so I'll throw this out there as, as a potential for, you know, impact in this decision-making. Are we making those decisions as leaders because we as leaders need people around us? You know, we need support of, you know, the, our subordinates under, under us, yeah. you know, or in a flat organization or su- our subordinates near us because we feel like we're on an island. You know, is that a piece of this? So I, I the picture of the pyramid is in my head and who's making these decisions and why they're making decisions, at least is absolutely right. It could be because of the business model. You know, that's maybe a, an obvious choice. You know, if, you, if your business model requires in-person employment, then that, you know, it is what it is. Right. You can't get around it. That's right. And the second thing I'll say is realist commercial real estate is real expensive. Oh yeah. Like that is, that is an issue here. You know, you can't, and it's not like it's easy to sell commercial real estate, right? You know, you can't just, you know, close your building and sell it and it'll be gone, you know, in a week or two. It's very hard to sell commercial real estate. And so those capital investments are hard to recoup. And, um, and so I think that's a, a piece here. My, my mind goes to Apple. Because I know that Tim Cook is wanting his, or he's thinking about his employees returning back to the office because what he says is, well, it's because what I prefer, you know, it's my preferred, like, you know, interaction style, but they have a, what is it? A $5 billion campus out there in California. I mean, <laughs> probably a lot of it is, I don't know this for right. certain, but, you know, and they're building another $1 billion campus in North Carolina, you know, this year, which is incredible. Um, but again, expensive real estate. A lot of it is is empty right now or, or half full and leaders are like, well, what are we going to do with this mm-hmm. piece of property that we own? And so that is, think about that. I mean, that is changing the structure of how we do business fundamentally in the United States and everywhere, but place-based decision-making, place-based innovation, place-based collaboration is slowly starting to be challenged and it's, it's scaring people. So... So there's practical considerations here too. Absolutely. No, the real estate piece is very true. It's a lot easier for a 50-person organization who may be leasing office space 
to decide, hey, we're going to let this lease run out and we'll close up and become fully remote to the thousands of people who could be working at some of these large organizations that have built campuses specifically for the purpose of housing all those employees that you can't just up and leave and pack your boxes. You're sitting on a ton of space that needs to be used. And I think that is certainly being a, a big driver for mm -hmm. some of these decisions too, is you got to use the space. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But again, you're, you're always going to be now dealing with that challenge of where does your top talent want to be? And for every great talented person who is willing to stick in that location where the campus may be located, you may lose somebody too who wants to be more fluid, more flexible. Albert, as your example was a perfect one there, right? That if there's an opportunity to accommodate flexibility, you can oftentimes keep some great talent. Right. And, and you hit it on the head there, uh, Josh. This is a talent retention, a talent attraction issue uh, big time, right? Because organizations are losing talent and at a pretty alarming rate right now. And they recognize that and they realize in order to attract that talent, they need to hire people remotely. Now, our organization is a perfect example of that. We, we've hired people uh, recently from other states. So we have people working at Champlain College, but they live in you know, other Michigan and Iowa and these other places, and they're fantastic. You know, we wouldn't have gotten them otherwise to come to Champlain if we didn't uh, loosen our policies and and uh, had the foresight on a leadership level to to make those decisions. So I I think it's great. Absolutely. I want to piggyback on that because go for it. It's a talent war, and it's been a talent war, especially in the tech arena. But in the last couple, you know, now it's all talent. And there is a benefit for me to be able to hire somebody in Missouri or Iowa. And, you know, now you go remote, Albert. I, I would be at Champlain in a minute if I didn't have to live in the snow. Maybe we should have a different conversation. But the point, you know, that's but that's where you're going to get good talent. Why do you have to have, be in this 50-mile radius? Now it really opens it up and it really levels the field, right? And that if you come back to the force the generation that is forcing us to rethink things, the millennials, they're like, give us a fair playing field. I want to live out in the boonies in Iowa, but I'm a software developer. Why do I need to go move to Silicon Valley to do that job? You don't have to. And for many years, you haven't had to. And now it's just really highlighted, right? Remote work seemed, I remember when I first were remote, everyone like, is that a real job? You get paid real money. I'm like, yes, it's real money. And now everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know, now the pandemic just highlighted the opportunity to really have that work-life blend and really being able to find the best talent, especially being in HR. All those HR and recruiters out there are feeling the pain right now in, in terms of trying to find talent, but knowing that you're not stuck in this 50 mile radius. And now you're like, I can hire anywhere in the US or you know, sometimes they have international opportunities. You can really pull talent from anywhere, which gives not only organizations access to new cultures, new ways of thinking, new processes, um, all of those things. Just think about all of us think that the three of us think the same and we're always together. How much growth is there? Zero. Right. But the minute you expand the different ways of thinking, even if we don't agree, the point being is that we all learn new things. You never want to be the smartest person in the room. And if you don't widen out that talent, then you just keep, you're like on a merry-go-round. Even though employers are scared to, for this whole thing, it's like, think about what your business can do. Think long-term. 
And I think not being open to different ways of working and how you attract talent can be very short-sighted and could be debilitating to a business in the long term because the businesses that are going to be successful right now are the ones that are going to take the risk and trial and error of what works for their employees and willing to kind of do the things that are new or, you know, like, oh, why would you do, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the word off the top of my head, but the thing that nobody wants to do and they're like, yeah, we're going to go try it. We'll figure it out. It's okay. You know, it's kind of like building the ship while you're in the middle of the ocean. And some people will be okay with that. And those will be the businesses that probably thrive very quickly through this for this, you know, especially the next 24 months. I think those will be, be the businesses that come out. And honestly, Albert Champlain loosening up because I remember it was a campus one. And so seeing that I worked with an instructional designer and he was, you know, not at Champlain. I was like, oh, this is amazing. So just really seeing, you know, higher education or education or, you know, the public sector is very structured and bureaucratic and just seeing that the onion is being peeled away. It's great to see because that means, you know, very strong foundational structures are willing to change. If an education institution is willing to change, then anybody can change because there's a lot of layers in that and a lot of regulation and a lot of red tape for them to be able to make those changes. So if, you know, somebody in the public sector or in an education institution can make those changes, so can a, a business in the private sector. It's a lot easier on the private sector than it is. I can only imagine the hoops that Champlain had to go through to loosen up that policy, given everything that, you know, the values and the accreditation and the processes and everything that they have to account for. So if they're willing to jump through those hoops, I just ask everybody to pause and say, like, what could you do differently that could really make your business longevity move forward? Yeah, that is so well said. And think of the advantage, too, that organizations now have that are located in parts of the country that may not have a hub for great talent. Now, all of a sudden, you've opened up your doors to anyone in the world who is the right fit. But now you have a chance to get the best person for the job, not the best person who's within a 50-mile radius for the job. Right. That's right. You're always trying to hire the best person for the job. Right. I just want to touch on one thing because yeah. this is a really big topic these days is that diversity. When you open the talent pool, you can increase your diver diversity population. And that is huge. Absolutely. That is a huge piece. You want to be able to tap into all groups and widening that proximity is a huge, huge plus. Organizations should be jumping on that big time. 100%. Okay, we're here with Dr. Albert Orbanati and Elisa Avalar, both from Champlain College Human Resources Management's online program. And I want to talk about the program that you've laid out now for your students in this current environment. So has anything been introduced into the curriculum over the last two years with so much that has changed to really prepare for this new world of human resources that we're going into? Yes. So um, one of the one of the intentional designs that we incorporated into our HR curriculum was this focus on, on data and how HR professionals can use data to, to help decision makers and or for themselves to make decisions, uh, but certainly how to, how to interpret data, how to make it into a format that decision makers can use. So uh, we've had this in, uh, incredible push to all of our courses in our HR program have modules on um, HR analytics. 
And we're not asking our we're not asking our students to you know actually you know, compile the data and to find the data. I mean that's that's another discipline altogether. But what we what we do is give them these uh, data sets related to a topic that we're teaching, and we're saying, okay, you're learning about this topic now. Here's how data can help you with this. And so we'll give them this, this data set, and we'll ask them to visualize it, and then we'll ask them to apply it to a business decision, like okay. Now that you've got this and you've visualized it and you've got it in a great format, what can we do with this? And so that's been uh, one of the intentional changes that we put into our, our curriculum. Uh, I will say that we have we have spent quite a bit of time talking about HR as a product versus a project, and that's uh, it's an important distinction. What, what do I mean by that? So. Um, one of the trends that we're seeing in HR right now is this movement uh, away from HR as managing these little projects uh, to focusing on a product which is ongoing. So you know it doesn't. So a product doesn't necessarily have an end or an aims to provide value, um, but the shift in mindset it helps to increase human resource uh, service delivery uh, delivery quality. And so away from these like small projects that we have to complete all the time to what we provide to the organization is this product and it's this living, breathing, growing, changing, um, you know, a thing that we need to culture and manage and, and, uh, and massage, you know, for the organization. So th- that change in focus is important for the curriculum. And, um, the, th- the third thing that I'll mention is developing or helping students understand that they have to develop career experiences. So th- the old model of lifelong career development, I'm thinking companies like IBM and AT&T and GE, all these awesome old companies that have been around forever, right? right. And so you identified talent and you developed it and then you want, hoped and prayed that you spent all this money uh, you know, developing your talent and hope and prayed that they stayed with the organization. And the reality is, these days, people don't stay with organizations, right? And so HR managers now are in this in the middle of this movement to create career experiences. And those experiences exist on different planes. So there's a lateral plane where an employee might be given an experience to try something related to the job that they do. There are vertical experiences where, you know, maybe they're in a position now and you know, in 10 years, they could be here. And so giving an employee an experience, you know, at that level and showing them what it is and what skills they need to get there. Um, a rotational experience. So taking an employee, a great uh, motivated employee, and then putting them in different parts of the organization. You know, try this out for three months, try this out for six months, try this. And so they'll rotate the, you know, employee through. And then there, there's uh, experiences called boomerang experiences too. So boomerang experiences are an employee leaves the organization for a year or two, gets uh, gets these awesome skills at another organization, then comes back and then suddenly has you know this new you know skill set. So what we're teaching in the curriculum is that HR professionals now have to be responsible for these career experiences and not just career development. Um, and the last thing I'll say is related to DEI, because this is so important. At least I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so we know that uh, DEI has evolved incredibly rapidly over the past couple of years, and it should 
and thankfully it is. Um, but being diverse and equitable and inclusive is not enough. And certainly the way that has been implemented in some organizations is just has, has not been enough at all. Um, but what we're learning is that what people really want is belonging. So we're shifting from DE&I to DE&I and B. So that, that belonging piece um, is about longing to be at an organization um, and, and creating psychological safety and at real, real inclusion. Mm-hmm. So it's all about safety in the workplace, making workers feel, uh, employees feel safe where they are and helping them feel belong, uh, like they belong in the organization. And so we've had this sort of surface level focus on DEI, and it has not been enough. The heart of the issue is belonging, making all employees feel like they belong. And so our curriculum absolutely focuses on that. And so that's one of the changes that we've seen in HR curriculum over uh, these past few years. It's exciting. It's exciting stuff. That's great. And so smart. And again, such a big focus for so many organizations now is they're finally putting a spotlight on diversity efforts within their organizations and preparing your students for how to do that correctly is so smart. And I'm so glad you touched on the belonging piece too. We had a, a recent conversation with an author, therapist, and specialist in exactly that space in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that was the focus of our conversation was that you really cannot be diverse if you haven't created a culture where the diverse talent you've brought in feels like they belong and are actually bringing their full self there. You've only gone halfway if you've only tried to create a diverse team, but not created a belonging culture. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right, Lisa, I'm going to shift gears to another question. Can you share a favorite success story from your experiences with Champlain College and with the Human Resources Management Program? Do you have any great success stories in your time there? Um, yes, I can think of one. Um, I frequently teach this class organizational behaviors. I brought it up earlier. Um, and it's really meant to, for the, the students, there's a lot of deep dive into who you are as a person, your biases, how you see things. And it really jars people and it's really uncomfortable and it's confronting. And this is where that DE and IB comes in because people are like, that's not who I am. And I said, I understand that. I know that's not who you are. It's make you help you be aware because now if you're aware of yourself, you can be aware of what's going on in the environment and possibly see things so that you can help others. That's the whole point of this. It's self-awareness so that you can help others. And I remember I had a student who was really, and Albert may recall this, she was just really torn about this. And I kind of had to walk her through this because she's like, I'm not participating in this and blah, blah. but I did. I I was able to kind of turn her around and say like, this is the reason we do this. This is to help you to help others. The reason you're in school is to help yourself, to help your others Remember, And I try and make things relatable. So I was, I went back to her introduction of like why she was going to school and what she was trying to do for her family. And I was like, so tying that all together. And it, it took about four or five days you know, and it's only a seven week class. So four or five days is a long time when, you know, you only have seven weeks, but it went, you know, and I, and finally she came back and I think it was about week five. She's like, I'm so glad that I didn't drop the class. I actually was able to open up a little bit and be vulnerable. Like you asked me to be, and that's really, is just being vulnerable. And it's not easy being confronted or taking this test or whatever, even though it's scientific and all these things, and you hear a bias that you prefer this over that. And you're like, that's not who it's confronting, 
but it also brings awareness to that whole DEIB conversation that we're trying to have. And in or if you're trying to be a leader, you need to be able to help other people be self-aware, recognize that, and be able to nip that quickly. Because if you don't, we all know how that can unravel so quickly. Even as me as a leader and as a professor, I was uncomfortable with the conversation because I'm trying to craft my communication in a way that was that made her still belong, but also made her open her eyes to see like that point of view is not exactly as accurate as you think it is. So I that's why I asked her to be vulnerable. Can you please be vulnerable and open and just allow, you know, help me. I will look to see what you see, but help. I need you to help see what I see as well. So can we come together and kind of come to that? But I also feel that's like the HR leader's job all day long. We're negotiating all day long. Right. And honestly, I was really proud of that situation. And I've had situations that went the other way too. And it doesn't always work, but I always remember that one because that was the first one where, and I even sent, I gave Albert a heads up as, you know, as my program chair. And I'm like, oh, this might come back to you, but I just want you to know this was what's going on, but this is how I'm handling it. Are, you know, am I missing something? That's the other thing I think leaders forget too, is to ask for help. You know, they think they have to solve it. And I was quick, like, should I have handled this differently? Are you okay with how, what I said? You know, I want to make sure that I'm aligning with the values of the organization. And is it, you know, this is how I would handle as a person, but is this how Champlain would want it handled? And I think that's a big thing too, is aligning, making sure that my moral compass is aligned with Champlain's moral compass. And so it all worked out. And so I always think back to that. So when I get a challenging situation, I'm like, okay, I, I handled a really, you know, someone's like yelling at me because they, you know, th this bias test. And I was like, it's really not, you know, it's deep, but not right. that deep. And you're trying to bring somebody back around. And so it was really great because at the end of the course, um, this person contributed a ton and actually got really engaged after that and then really was able to absorb and take the value of the class of what it was meant to be. And really, you know, there's those outcomes that we always want every student to be able to take in. And um, it was a really successful outcome. So that one always sticks in my head. I think that one's probably almost two years old at this point, but it always sticks out in my head. That's awesome. And again, you're just building that trust component that goes back to what we mm -hmm. had talked about and what you had mentioned at the start of the conversation as part of the role as an HR leader is you're really creating that trust for employees or in this case, students and helping them over the hurdles that they may be facing to really get on board. Josh, just a, a quick aside. One yeah. of the best things about adult learners or adults in school, the, the population that we, that we collaborate with is they'll let you know that They'll let you know if they're upset. They will let the president of the college know if they're upset and you'll get this nice letter. But what's also great is that they'll they'll go out of their way to say when things have been transformative for them. And so I, I could go on and on for hours about all these transformative experiences that we've we've helped, you know, students have over the years. But uh, yeah, it's great. It, you know, Champlain College is a unique place because we listen. We listen to our students. Uh, very intently. That is fantastic. I, I love it. So we'll get you guys wrapped up here, but just to remind our listeners, we're here again with Dr. Albert Orbanati and Alisa Avalar representing the Champlain College Human Resources Management Online Program and sharing some really great insight for us today about where we're headed with the future of human resources. So for the last question here to wrap up, if you both wouldn't mind sharing, what's one thing you're excited about in the human resources industry going forward? So, Alisa, why don't we start with you? What's something you're excited about? 
I will say I've never been a traditional HR person. I've never been the policy person and reading all the rules. You know, I always felt like I was never, I was always against the grain in HR because I always had different thinking. And I feel like now I'm coming into my prime. Like, finally, we're going to talk about people and being compassionate and empathetic and creative solutions and helping people see things differently. And so I feel like we're finally getting to that. And you know, I think the pandemic gave us the pros and the cons. And the pros were is that everybody was able to pause and take stock in their life and figure out what their priorities were. But then it also allowed organizations to do that. And then on top of that, HR leaders inside of those organizations really had a loud voice. You know, um, we've been raising our voice over the years, but the last two years, we've really had a voice because all of a sudden this pandemic happened and you know, everybody's working remote and employee productivity engagement. All of a sudden, the entire C-suite is like, okay, HR, what do we do? And we're like, we're on, we got it. Finally, getting off the bench. And that's where we really get to shine and really talk about the people. And so that's what HR is really about. So I want to just kill those stereotypes that we're all for the company's benefit and we only do things that's for the company side because that's really not who we are. And that's not how I lead and that's not how teach I teach others to lead. Um, so I think that HR is finally going to be coming into its prime of really focusing on what is important, which is the people of the organization. And now we have a true voice. And I think the voices around all organizations, just not certain industries or certain organizations, I think we've pretty much leveled the field on that. That's fantastic. Definitely something to be excited about. Thank you for sharing that. Albert, what's something you're excited about in the future of the human resources industry? The past couple of years, um, we all got a chance to feel like what true work-life balance felt like. I felt like prior to the pandemic, we sort of uh, edged around this issue. We talked about it a lot. What the pandemic has taught us, many of us, is that a work-life balance can exist we now know what it looks like. It's not for everybody. I'll admit that. And so I'm excited that employees, workers, the people who constitute the majority of the workforce, or this grand empowerment uh, you know, experiment that we're going through right now, that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited that the power has shifted a little bit you know, from, from leadership, maybe down the pyramid a little bit. It has shifted or around the circle, depending on what, what uh, chart you have in your head. So it has shifted a little bit, and I'm very excited about that because I think that only means more opportunity for HR, more opportunity to grow this incredible field. Uh, and so that's what I'm most excited about. That is definitely exciting, and we are in an exciting time with the human resources industry. And you both are really at the forefront of, of grooming that next batch of talent that goes in. So thank you both for just sharing such great insight. For our listeners who want to learn more about Champlain College, where can we direct them to learn more about the Human Resource Management Online Program and all great things that are being offered from Champlain College? Sure. It's very simple. It's online.champlain.edu. Perfect. Nice and easy. And we'll, uh, we'll certainly link to that through our website as well. So for any of our listeners that want to learn more, certainly check in there for more information. But again, Thank you to Dr. Albert Orbanati and Alisa Abelard. It was great having you on the HR Works podcast. I feel like there's even so much more that we could dig into here. We'll have to have you guys back next time to, to pick up this conversation, but this was a great start. So again, thank you for both joining and both sharing such great insight. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
All right, thanks very much. Okay, well that concludes part two of our conversation with Dr. Albert Orbanati and Elisa Avalar, members of the Human Resource Management Online Program at Champlain College. Thank you again to both of our guests for a great conversation that gave us some insightful and honest ideas for leading teams into success in the modern era and continuing to grow this great human resources community. In case you missed part one of our conversation with Albert and Elisa, be sure to check that one out on HR Daily Advisor or whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. And we'll be back next week for another great episode of the HR Works Podcast. Thank you for listening to the HR Works Podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible.